millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So anyway, Sharon and I have been putting together a number of our friends that we happen to know, you know, ever since we started dating our, you know, our social groups have essentially doubled and we've, you know, we've known a few eligible bachelors and I suppose bachelorettes, although I don't know if there's a gender neutral term for that. So, you know, post op, you know, uh, postcards to reconsider in uh, Boston, the world, please, if you happen to know that, but uh, but anyway, so we've we've now both of us were like kind of y- yentas in the past, and now that we've linked up, we're kind of like Voltron yenta, and just uh, you know, and just like run around making it happen. Is that like Yoltron? Yoltron? No, that sounds way too much like Yolo, and we're not gonna <laughs> abide by that at all. Welcome, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be reconsidering GDP. My first note, before we get started, and it'll be quick, is I'm a little sick, so just bear with me. But I wanted to, you know, get this to y'all, and Xander was kind enough to stay available, even while I got up a little bit late. So we're just going to jump right into it and talk about you know, other ways of trying to understand how well an economy, you know, serves the the humans of the, the world and the nation. Right. And as you all know, GDP is the only metric that matters, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what the show's about. No, it's interesting because, and I forget the name of the economist who actually came up with a formulation for GDP, GDP back in like the 20s or 30s. I probably should have looked that up before the episode, but so be it. In In the introductory paper in which he outlines and describes and defines GDP, he explicitly says this should not be a proxy for measuring a nation's well-being. It is only one metric. And then immediately after that metric yeah. was defined, it became the only metric that people use for a nation's prosperity. Yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you brought that up. I kept looking for that and I kept looking at my Google foo failed me because I had also read that a number of times in the past and couldn't find it again. So if anyone has the source, please leave it in the comments at reconsidermedia.com on the page so that other people can get this too. But yeah, that was the idea is like we obsess over GDP and the person who made GDP was like, this is not the thing we should be obsessing over. Everyone's like, great, got it. Okay, let's obsess over it. Boom. (laughs) And so why does this even matter? Why are we talking about something that might appear to belong more appropriately in like an intermediate economics class. Well, clearly economics matters in politics and it therefore matters in the conversations that we have. And in the 2020 Democratic presidential debates, there's been much to do about 
the economy. And, you know, this isn't new. It's the economy, stupid, as was once so ineloquently said. But, I mean, the point sticks. And the idea today is that the economy has been growing. GDP is higher, right? But for a lot of people, they're still feeling the repercussions of the recession 10 years ago. The economy feels like it's kind of crummy right now. And so to respond to that frustration and at times popular outrage, there are a lot of new ideas being presented in the political sphere in terms of how to make this somewhat less crummy for all of these people. Right. Yeah. So we've been hearing a lot more about it recently because of the Democratic presidential debates. There's a you know, there's a bit of one-upsmanship going on every now and then where to get a bump, you know, the candidates are like, okay, I'm going to unveil like yet another thing that I'm going to do to make the economy better. And, and you know, skeptics will go, ah, yes, another way to spend another trillion dollars. Congratulations. And, you know, and, and adherents will go like, okay, finally someone's doing something about this. And what feels weird about all this is that if we start looking at some of the top line metrics that are typically used, right, in the news, to measure the health of the economy, things look great, right? GDP is higher than ever by a lot. The stock market is higher than ever, although like more and more people pay, you know, people don't see that as a great proxy anymore. But even GDP per capita has totally blown up, even accounting for inflation. Right now it's at 62600 and the pre-recession peak, so back in 2009, was 48400 I mean, this is a massive jump. And the growth rate here is a little lower than it was in the 90s and 2000s. And the growth rate in the 90s and 2000s is slower than it was in the 70s and 80s. And so you get that slowdown that's been going on in the United States that all the Western countries seem to have. But, you know, but the economy keeps growing at this compounding rate. And so there's just like tons of money flying around. So it feels good. And if we look at GDP per capita across other countries, and if we take out some of like the micro states like Liechtenstein, or ignore like Macau, right? Like these places that are just like a giant trade city. The only four countries in the world with a higher GDP per capita are Switzerland, Norway, Qatar, and Iceland, of which two of them, Norway and Qatar, have like ridiculous amounts of hydrocarbons per person. And, you know, so like, so the, you know, they, they get the ability to just like stick a straw on the ground and get a lot of oil and produce a lot of GDP that way. And so it seems like the economy is doing really well from this top-line typical metric of GDP, gross domestic product. And so, you know, you kind of ask, look at that, like, why on earth, you know, what what do we have to whinge about here? What, what does whinge mean, Eric? Well, I guess, yeah, maybe maybe I'm, like, new on, new on using the word whinge because I, uh, I was told by... I was told by an advisor of mine not to use the word wine at work. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I looked up alternatives to whining because I would be like, we shouldn't whine about this. And people, you know, and the advisor was like, don't say whining, you know, kind of kind of like try not to try not to imply like the team that you've recruited is is whiny. And so I'm now starting to use whinge. <laughs> and it's, just, it's just a way of saying <laughs> wine, but that's that's much less. And it doesn't have associations with like a small crying child. So. I've stopped You're an innovator, why. Eric. Exactly. God, I uh, we're gonna do it. We'll do an episode someday on on startups. We'll we'll shoehorn it in somehow. But you know, if anyone's seen Silicon Valley, they're like it's it's sometimes hard to watch because it's sometimes it's a little too spot on. A little bit like if you've seen Xander, have you seen the movie Role Models? 
I haven't seen that. No. Okay. I'll, I'll end the digression in a second here, but role models is about these like two guys that like, I forget what crime they commit, but it's some dumb crime. This is like your typical, like white guy, like dumb white guy comedy, but they end up being heroes, even though they're dumb. And so they have to do community service and they end up doing it with these like kids who are doing live action role playing. And I do live action role playing. And so when my friends find out that I do live action role playing, they're like, oh, is it like role models? Is it like that movie? And of course, role models is over the top ridiculous. And basically LARPing is to role models as like actually being, you know, a news anchor is to the anchorman or actually being a semi-pro dodgeball player is to dodgeball or uh, actually being a tech startup founder is to Silicon Valley. Like there are all these, it's, it's obviously over the top, but like, it's all got these nuggets of truth that like sting when you're part of it. So anyway, the reason we ended up doing this episode was that I recently read an article in which Joseph Stiglitz, who's a Nobel winning economist, right? So smart guy. He says in a book that he wrote that we've linked, but then also in this article promoting the book, uh, that an obsession with GDP has like actually become a problem. It's not just like, oh, ho, ho, we're measuring it wrong, but that, uh, you know, but that, uh, that's driving really bad incentives at the government policy level. So he says, quote, the world is facing three existential crises, a climate crisis, an inequality crisis, and a crisis in democracy. Yet the accepted ways by which we measure economic performance give absolutely no hint that we might be facing a problem. If we measure the wrong thing, we will do the wrong thing. End quote. You see, I did a Dan Carlin there. I really like. I, I was, <laughs> I was just about to comment. I was yeah. about to say, "Nice Dan Carlin," but then yeah. I, I, I decided not to. But then you <laughs> said it. Yeah. So we're all on the same page here. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, uh, he thinks it's a major problem, and so I decided to do a little bit of research, and Xander joined me, and now we have an episode. So, do we need to reconsider how useful GDP can be as a measure of economic health? Hint, yes. Yeah, right. So wh- where does this this measurement gross domestic product fall short? And oftentimes GDP as a whole is measured like the US's GDP is about 20 trillion dollars. It's it is the sum total of all productive activities in the US, all productive economic activities. And one way to gauge how well a country is doing is GDP per capita. And that just means if you divide total gross domestic product by the total number of people living in a country, what do you get? And it's, you know, 62,600 in the US right now, as Eric mentioned a moment ago. But how is GDP calculated? Well, the the basic economic definition is consumer spending and different types of investment, government spending, and then your difference in exports. But that leads you to some of these strange circumstances where, you know, if the government borrows a trillion dollars and generates an addition, additional trillion dollars in debt and uses that borrowed money to pay for people to dig holes and fill them back in, well, that technically goes into the government spending account of GDP. And that means that GDP will actually go up by $1 trillion, even though no real economic activity has been completed in terms of you know any sort of productive infrastructure and the government is a trillion dollars more in debt. So this is how you get cases where fiscal policy, which is government spending, can often, quote, pump GDP in the short term and sometimes have negative long-term consequences if that short-term spending does not generate economic growth that outweighs whatever the cost of the borrowing is. 
Now, this digging holes and filling them back in example is sometimes even controversial because if we think of the, you know, there's many different stories about how Franklin Delano Roosevelt's policies during the Great Depression, like, did or did not help, right? So, you know, you take all those people who are digging holes and filling them back in. Well, like, now they have, you know, a salary for the year. And they didn't before, right? So that's potentially good, right? And so we have relief efforts that are coming in. And, you know, and then you also have Keynes's broken window theory, which, as he said it, is, is, has been debunked. And it's been like, you know, the, the kind of inheritors of the Keynesian tradition have, have made it more nuanced in time, which, which should be the case, right? This is, this is good. This is how the world works. But, you know, Keynes talked about, you know, with, with if a window breaks, then, then the glassmaker has to make a new window and they get paid and the, you know, they use that to go buy a coat. And so the coat maker gets paid. And then, you know, you have this idea of money velocity where, whereby, you know, stimulating economic activity in this way, you get people that now have money that can go spend it, that can stimulate more economic activity. And this is actually a really good thing. And, and it, and it runs around and it was the digging holes and filling that back, them back in example was Milton Freeman's way of saying, like, look, on its own, this is a bit ridiculous. Like, we wouldn't spend a trillion dollars to dig holes and fill them back in again. It's not, you know, and so you, and so you actually don't, you know, he's, he's trying to make this case that, like, all money spent by the government or, like, all money spent on economic activity is not equally good, right? And so that's where, that's where GDP, strictly speaking, falls short. Like, even though these people who are digging holes, they now have money that they can go spend – well, it might have even been better just to like just to do what's called helicopter money and like give them the money without without having them dig holes and fill them back in again. And now you don't have you don't have that extra trillion in GDP because they weren't doing any work for it. So it gets a little complicated. But the key point is like whenever there is economic activity, no matter how kind of bad the circumstances, GDP goes up for that year. So if there's like a major earthquake. And like a ton of buildings get leveled and then you have to bring in millions of people to go rebuild those buildings. All of a sudden your GDP is like gone through the roof because you had to rebuild New York or something. And, you know, if you're just an economist only looking at GDP, like hanging out in an armchair somewhere with a cigar and you actually don't know what happened, you're like, this is great. Right. That's all economists do. Exactly. Like, yeah. Did you know? It's like it's like these cigars actually come with a degree. And so they go like, this is great. Like, look at look at, you know, all the economic activity this year. And, you know, and the fact that an earthquake happened, like it's actually bad. Right? Like, it's actually bad that there was an earthquake and that all these buildings went down and, you know, people had to spend all this money that they otherwise didn't need to spend, that they could have spent on something else to go rebuild all this stuff. And, you know, a lot of people have to go into debt to make it done and all this stuff. But it looks good because people did more things, but it's clearly not good. So this is these edge cases, they're illustrated, you know, at times they're a little bit ridiculous, but they're extreme cases to kind of show how fraught GDP can often be in in measuring the you know in measuring the the health of the economy or measuring like how well the economy is serving the well being of people. Yeah, and I think what what's interesting here is you start talking about you know should the government invest money or should we hand out money to consumers that can then spend money because I mean you mentioned helicopter money right and I've heard different definitions of that but if you were to just give everyone two hundred dollars. That probably would ultimately end up driving up GDP. It would flow in through the consumer spending account right. rather than the government spending account. But what's interesting to me about that is not that 
there's controversy about the digging and filling in holes example, which there is, and people will argue about that. But that really the conversation turns into which mechanisms do you think are most effective in terms of generating economic activity? Because if the government can borrow that trillion dollars and push it into the economy in the ways that even if, you know, the spending is generated from people who are earning an income from digging and filling in holes, maybe that does flow into other areas of the economy, like you mentioned, that, you know, will ultimately generate enough incremental tax revenue to pay off the debt. So it is all about relative gain versus cost. And I think when you look at it that way, the intricacy and subtlety of this particular debate comes out a little bit more than just like yeah. the the partisan, you know, attacks of one side versus the other, like, oh, I hate trickle down and oh, you're just spending our money, something, 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 right? So the, the question really is what's more effective? And that becomes, a, that that can become a discussion with, you know, meaningful dialogue. But- Anyways, back to the main topic. Yeah. So you have this GDP metric. Let's say everything gets cheaper in an economy. Maybe there are lower costs of raw material, for example, and people are buying the same things. And you know, clearly that might not actually be the case because if it's cheaper, they might not buy. They might buy more. But let's say they're just buying the same amount of stuff, and the price has gone down. Well, GDP might then actually go down by the same amount. Because consumer spending would be reduced by the amount of the cheaper goods, even though it's the same quantity of stuff. And clearly there are edge cases to this too. But the idea is that you can't just look at domestic production without also considering the cost of living in a country, right? Right. Yeah. So you can have GDP go down because cost of living went down. And if you're looking just at GDP, you're like, oh, no, this is terrible. There's a recession when like everyone is actually doing way better. Right. They spent a little less of the year. They saved a bunch of money. They got the same amount of stuff. This is good. GDP would would paint it as bad. The case the case where like GDP really starts to go off the rails in ways that we're probably all familiar with is when we start thinking about economic bubbles. So if we go back to 2008, things looked great. Right. The economy (laughs) looked awesome. Yeah. And then in 2009, it was suddenly terrible. And of course, what happens here is, and I've got my own like beef about this that I'm going to try to keep to myself. But when we look at this, we we see this like decline from 2008 to 2009, where like the economy loses, I don't know, like 25% of its value. And we go, something must have happened in 2008 that caused the actual economic value, like the economic health of the nation to contract by 25%, because that's what GDP said. But the whole idea of economic bubbles is that the values of certain stuff are radically overinflated, which means that GDP is accounting for those values of things that have kind of no right to be worth that. So in 2008, it was the housing market, right? And so the idea that the economy actually contracted by 25% is like in some ways kind of true. But the implication is that in 2008, everything was fine until it wasn't. When, you know, most economists would say that, no, in 2008, everything was rotten, right? There were these major problems in the economy that were masked by GDP. There were these huge bubbles in the housing market. There were, there was lots of like, think of that digging holes and filling them back in. People were building houses that nobody wanted to live in, right? But because everyone was so fired up about the housing market, people bought them just as investments. So you're all of a sudden building on these houses that nobody lives in at all. So think, you know, almost, you know, the extreme example, Chinese ghost cities. 
And then when and then when kind of the butcher's bill comes due, that's when we recognize it, and that's when things adjust. And that's why it's often called like a readjustment, right? Economic economic readjustment that that the measurements that we're seeing, the prices of things, the stock market, GDP, go back to where they should be, right? And so the pro, you know, one of the places that GDP becomes a a particularly dangerous way of measuring the economy is when you're at the top of the bubble, you think everything is going great, when in fact there's all these terrible dangers going on, and you know the the more Hayek style economists, right, the, the inheritors of the Hayek tradition. You know, we talked about if you've listened to the Austrian debate uh, kind of thing, he was like the original Austrian. And, you know, these guys would say that that, you know, you actually run into because we're measuring GDP so fiercely, you run into these really perverted incentives by politicians to kind of keep the party going. Right. You don't want to be the one to spoil the party. Even Keynes. Right. Who like, you know, Hayek and Keynes were like. They were rivals, right? They argued all the time. Even Keynes would say, hey, look, in the good times, what you need to do is slow things down a little bit by increasing taxes, by increasing interest rates, right? So you have to like pump the brakes with monetary policy, bring interest rates back up to prevent these bubbles from happening, you know, to, to kind of counterbalance the, the business cycle where what happens is because we always want GDP going up in the short term, Right. Because like politicians kind of get rewarded and reelected if if in that election year or coming up to that election year, the GDP went up in the short term. What they want to do is they want to keep the party going. So I don't know. Let's just pretend it's 2019 and the economy is bigger than it's ever been. And instead of increasing taxes and increasing interest rates, we reduce taxes and reduce interest rates. I don't know who would do that. It's such a bad idea, according to every economist, as to be unthinkable. But imagine we did that, right? We'd be actually like kind of pumping the economy with monetary and fiscal policy in a time that it doesn't need it. And there's a, there would be, in that purely hypothetical case, a risk of creating a <laughs> bubble that, you know, a bubble of overinflated prices and, and such that, that when the butcher bill comes due, it, it would be even worse. Right, so purely hypothetical. Purely purely hypothetical. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So this is this is where this example of how GDP drives incentives in you know especially national domestic politics is where it can become really dangerous if we overfocus on it. And there's a couple of things that come from this. For example, the independence of central banks stems from this basic political realization that elected officials are more likely to pump money into an economy if they have that power in order to drive economic productivity, GDP up right before an election. So a lot of people will say that there's quite an interesting wave right now in the U.S. sort of against the Federal Reserve, just thinking that it's sort of this evil entity and that it should be controlled more by Congress. But there is a historical reason for its independence, and this is basically it. Now, if you look at asset values, which is what Eric was just talking about, they are not directly captured in GDP. If you're right. familiar at all with like financial statements, and I'll simplify this, don't worry. There's profit loss statements, which kind of capture how much money you made in a year. So it's like a measurement over time. And then there are these balance sheets that capture a snapshot of sort of how many assets and liabilities a company has at a given, it's one, it's on one date. And there's a relationship between the two because as the total value of assets and economy increase, 
then a couple of things happen. One, there's this thing called wealth effect and people feel richer and they're likely to spend more and then that increases in GDP. And two, if you have a greater asset value, you can borrow more money right. and invest that money in other things and that increases GDP. So they are tied. And But of course, one thing that GDP doesn't capture, for example, in 2008, 2009 is the poor credit of a lot of these assets and the risk of liquidity shocks, which is ultimately what toppled the economy in 2008, 2009, when I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, sorry, but I think it's relevant and I'll tie it back. There, there are these overnight markets that banks use to lend to one another called repo markets, repurchase markets. And it's very, very short term debt. And it's like, you know, a couple of percent annually, but they only lend for the night. You're basically and- renting money. Yeah. I, yeah. And the idea is, you know, you never really know exactly as a bank if you're going to be a little short on cash one day. So you provide this liquidity to one another just to make sure that, you know, your operations are fine. And it's kind of the idea is to strengthen the financial system so that if there's a short term gap on, you know, in one bank, it doesn't threaten the whole system. But what happened was as Lehman's asset quality became more in doubt as people realized that some of these collateralized obligations of several different houses, for example, were really not what valued what they thought they should be. All of a sudden, Lehman lost access to these overnight repo markets, which was novel at the time. It was unusual. And because it could no longer fund its operations, because it no longer had access to the short-term money, that's what killed Lehman. It w- Ultimately, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And if you look in the last couple of months, interestingly enough, you've seen these spikes in overnight repo market rates, like huge spikes from like 2 to 3% to like 7% in the course of a week. And then they came back down and the Federal Reserve pumped some liquidity into these markets. But we're again seeing somewhat inexplicable volatility in the markets that ultimately led to the 2009 crisis. And I just thought that was worth mentioning. So last uh, I want to I want to I'm, I'm just tempted to tell this joke. And then there's kind of one more point we want to make about why GDP per capita can be crummy. And then we're going to and then we're going to jump to like other ways of of talking about how to measure economic health. Right. So here's a quick joke. Two economists are walking through the woods. Sandra, I don't know if you've heard this, but if you haven't, you're going to love it. Two economists are walking through the woods and uh, we'll just call them A and B, you know, Andy and Bob. So Andy and Bob run into some bear poo. And Andy looks at Bob and he goes, you know, Bob, I'll pay you $200 if you eat that bear poo. Bob's like, oh, God, bear poo. But, you know, $200. You know, sure. All right, fine. (laughs) So he eats the bear poo and Andy gives Bob $200. And then Andy's like, man, I could really use, you know, I really need that $200. So so that was a dumb idea. So Bob and Andy then run into another pile of bear poo, of course, which is a good sign that you should probably go the other direction. But that, <laughs> that aside, um, Bob then looks at Andy and goes, you know, Andy, I'll pay you $200 to eat that pile of bear poo. You know, I kind of double dog dare you. And Andy goes like, well, you know, I really needed that $200 to get Bob. So, OK, fine. I'll eat the bear poo. And Andy eats the bear poo. And, you know, it's, it's miserable. And Bob gives Andy the $200. And then as they're walking along, Bob looks at Andy and he goes, you know, Andy, I can't help but feel like we just both ate bear poo for nothing. And Andy goes, well, not for nothing. We just added $400 to the GDP, <laughs> which is which is a, a great economist joke to to kind of encapsulate some of the, you know, some of the ways that GDP can can be a little bit silly at the edges. But the, the last reason, of course, that GDP 
per capita has shortcomings is like, even if all those other things were pretty accurate, it doesn't account for distribution, right? It doesn't account for who has, who gets what out of what was produced that year. So, you know, in the edge case, one person could get a hundred percent of what was produced that year. That would be bad. You know, we'd be in like medieval feudal Europe kind of thing. And so you can look at these GDPs per capita and say, wow, it looks like everyone's doing great. The average person gets 62,000 a year. But if you don't look at the distribution, right, we start talking about inequality at this point, you don't have a good marker of what's going on there. The defense of GDP, the reason it is like at all valuable that we can look at it is that the nice, the nice thing about measuring GDP is it's the stuff that was produced that year. And stuff that's produced, right, it gets in some people's hands somehow. And we can tax it. We can do all sorts of things with what was produced that year. And if you produce more in a year, that you have more things that you can do. So, like, if you imagine you're, you're the government, right, when GDP, you know, when you have a higher GDP, like, if, if you know, you, you're working with the United States GDP per capita rather than that of, like, the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's all these things that you can do that the DRC can't do because you've got all this stuff. You can build roads. You can provide health care. You can provide education. You can provide you know, unemployment assistance, all these things. And so it's not like GDP is not a totally phantom measurement of economic health and economic potential, you know, but, but there are all these other factors beyond GDP that we need to be able to observe to understand how well things are going. And yet we still need to buy cobalt from the DRC. Indeed. There, so there are these other metrics they're just not quite as well publicized. So for example, gross national product GNP or gross national income GNI, which are similar, they capture a little bit more of the, of the total income of, of a nation, which is why it's called gross national income. And this, the distinction here has to do with physical location. So gross domestic product GDP has to do with the economic productivity within the physical confines of a country's borders. So, if I live in the U.S. and own this business that has a lot of international operations, the income generated by those international operations, even if they're headquartered in the U.S., don't get counted towards GDP, but they would get counted towards, towards gross national income. And many would argue that that's a better measurement of the total productive activity of that country, of that nation in a given year, because it's a global economy and all that. So. That's that's one metric. Another is just sort of a different statistical measurement, right? Median income, because when you look at GDP per capita, it's average. And the problem with averages, for anyone that's taken a statistics class, they'll know that a very low number of high values or, or low values can throw that average off pretty wildly. So if you have, you know, a thousand numbers in a data set and they all range from like, between four to six, except for two that are like three million, is going to throw the whole average off. And median just captures a little bit better of those skewed distributions than does an average. Yeah. So a median, you know, if anyone remember mean, median, and mode. So when we talk about GDP per capita, that's the mean, right? So you add up all the add up all the incomes and divide by the number of people. And so if you've got a very unequal, you know, unequal Society, it's going to skew towards that wealthier when, when in fact, like most people are making way less than that GDP per capita. Median is the middle person, right? So if you stack rank everyone's income from low to high and you pick the person bang on in the middle, that's the median. And so that is like the, that is the, the most averagest person. And 
Um, and so we can. <laughs> You're the most averagest. Yeah, yeah congratulations. <laughs> and so, like, the most average person, uh, what they're making is their median income. And so, if you look at median household income in the United States as an alternative way of measuring economic health, the United States is actually number four at 62,900. So, you know, good work. Number four, if we, again, accepting these like micro states that are just cities like Monaco and Liechtenstein, the U.S. is just ahead of Denmark, which is at 60,000 and behind Iceland at number three at 68,000. So congratulations, Iceland. And if we look at average wage, which is a different way, a slightly different way of measuring it where, um, you know, we're talking about how, how much like people are being paid by their employer. Again, very slightly different way of measuring it. The U.S., that drops from 62,000 to 60,500. But that's actually still number four and well ahead of the Netherlands, which is at 53,000. And so what that means is like the middle person in the United States is actually getting paid quite a bit globally, right? So they're, or that middle household in the United States is getting paid quite a bit in terms of global, you know, in terms of global ranking. One of the things that does not take into account is cost of living. And before I get into what cost of living is, Eric, I, I just need to ask you, what do you have against Liechtenstein? Oh gosh, I have I yeah, I've never <laughs> been to Liechtenstein. I hear it's a wonderful <laughs> little microstate. But the reason I'm taking it out of the calculation is that, you know, cities tend to make more than the countryside in part due to cost of living. You know, and they're like little trade hubs like Macau and Hong Kong and Singapore make like, you know, just metric piles of money. And I'm as best as I can trying to come up with measurements that seem like somewhat on parity. So I just I've been excluding those from my ranking. And if Fonseca's out there listening and Enrique Fonseca, a great friend of the show. What's uh, up, buddy? He's a big fan of Liechtenstein and he's actually met some <laughs> some higher level leaders from Liechtenstein on a trip that he went there a while ago. So what's up, Fonseca? Well, in a place as small as Liechtenstein, you're going to run into the higher level leaders in the pub. Right. Yeah. Like it's just going to happen when your country is 100,000 people like you'll know the prime minister at some point and which is kind of cool. But or or I don't know, it's Liechtenstein, a parliamentary democracy. I hope so. We'll have but, to come back to that one. But so the, the thing that a lot of these measurements don't take into consideration, as Eric just mentioned, is the cost of living, because you might have an average wage of 60,000 and maybe in the second country it's 50,000 but maybe in the second country the average cost of living is you know 50% that in country A so even though you're earning less money in absolute terms you can actually provide for a better lifestyle for yourself with the lower cost of everything in that country so this this notion is called purchasing power parity and it's just one of those econ wonky terms. It just basically means cost of living. So if you ever come across PPP or purchasing power parity, it just means how expensive stuff is, basically. And that can kind of equalize, to some extent, these differences in income between countries. Now, if you've ever come across the economist's Big Mac index... <laughs> And you may have heard about it and not known that it was it was The Economist, but they actually came up with this measurement a while ago and have been tracking it. And the idea is you look at purchasing power parity or the cost of living based on how many Big Macs you can get with a certain amount of money or, you know, your paycheck. 
because Big Macs are consumer commodities that are fairly standardized across countries, you know, say for the differences in burgers that are made in like McDonald's India, which are, you know, they don't serve hamburger there. But aside from that, they're largely similar. So in purchasing power parity terms, the United States median income is 63390 And except for in some of these small oil-based states, it's really only behind Luxembourg, Switzerland, Norway, and Ireland. So in terms of median income adjusted for the cost of living, the U.S. is fifth in the world. Yeah, and uh, fifth, fifth, accepting those some you know those five tiny oil-based states such as the UAE and Qatar and Kuwait. Those are up there. It turns out it's like pretty cheap to live there, and there's a ton of oil. So you know, good for you. And but it's but where the United States is well ahead. What's very interesting is it's well ahead of Germany, Finland, Canada, France, the United Kingdom, Japan, a little bit ahead of Netherlands and Denmark. So what this means is that, you know, you take again, this is this is the median income. Median. So this is the the most averagest person in the United States taking into account the most averagest cost of living. That person's paycheck goes farther in the United States than in Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, Finland, Canada, France, the United Kingdom. It doesn't go quite as far as Luxembourg, Switzerland, Norway, Ireland, and then also, of course, like, you know, Kuwait and Qatar and and the UAE and stuff like that. So again, it's it's the the most middleest person. Once we start introducing these other measures that account for you know how far does your paycheck go, does pretty well. And so, since we brought up the Big Mac index, we decided to do a bit of research on it. The Big Mac index actually does really well, like city by city. You can get all these like kind of micro variations on it. So I was looking at like the stack ranking and the most recent Big Mac index by the Economist. The city of Miami, Florida does really well at number five in terms of how many minutes of work does the median person need to work to buy a Big Mac? And the answer is 10.7 minutes. So the mean person works 10.7 minutes to buy a Big Mac. Now, this brings up all sorts of like weird kind of existential ennui about our modern you know, our modern economy when you're like counting your life in terms of Big Macs per minute. But, you know, so don't, you know, like just, just for your own like mental health, don't think too hard about this. But 10.7 minutes for Big Mac. Hong Kong wins the day at 8.6 minutes. Luxembourg is number three at 10.3 minutes. So Miami is just behind Luxembourg in the Big Macs per minute index not quite sure what to make of all of it but it is fun you know to think about and of course there's all these there's all these other things that matter besides big macs but the nice part about the big mac is that (laughs) is there though yeah well it it brings it brings like raw materials (laughs) into account it brings cost of food into account and it even brings like labor into account a little bit of real estate because you know you can only put McDonald's in place that can be profitable if the, if the, like the cost of the Big Mac per the cost of real estate is pretty good. So it's, that's, that's why they use it. It's pretty cool. So it ain't perfect, but it's a good way of thinking about how, okay, you've got a certain amount of income, but you also have to care about how, how expensive your life is and how to bake that in. So when we think about economics generally, what is the study of economics for? Well, it has to do with the economy, but that itself is sort of an ambiguous intangible, right? It's the economic activity of hundreds of millions of people. And 
As economists try to understand these complex relations and the web of interactions, they're trying to answer a couple of different questions. And what you'll often see is correlation between economic activity and things like health or people's life expectancy, uh, comfort of living and access to certain types of leisure activities, the amount of time they can take off work, access to certain luxury commodities, or, you know, maybe the ability to go to a museum that's nearby that has a really nice stock or, you know, good hygiene and new uh, diet and stuff like that. So in one way or another, economics is trying to understand how how the financial system and the total productivity of a country contributes to all of those different categories. So clearly there are other measurements than merely how much when you're trying to answer those questions. And one, which Joseph Stiglitz alluded to in that quote from his book that Eric mentioned a couple of minutes ago, is this crisis of inequality. And inequality really is becoming a problem. And if you look at just, for example, the growth in in equities over the last couple of decades compared to the growth in real wages in the U.S., there's quite a distinction. And the idea is that you know wealthier people on average tend to have more stocks or more appreciating assets, so they will benefit to a greater degree from this than folks who don't own those and just depend on their wages to get by. So there's one metric called the Gini coefficient, which is meant to measure inequality within different countries. And clearly, inequality in the U.S. is one of the big topics getting discussed over the last decade since the Great Recession and certainly in the 2020 presidential campaign. Well, I guess that technically hasn't started, but the primaries are going and it will be an issue. So measuring inequality is not particularly easy. There are different ways to try and measure this. And we talked about this, gosh, way, way back. And I forget which episode it was, but I I think it maybe it was one of the education episodes we did, like episode eight or nine, where we talked about how do you even measure the middle, right? Does it have to do with some sort of absolute measurement or is it relative? And there, there are serious academic debates about this, but you know, how much of the national income is controlled by the top 10% or the top 1% or the bottom 10%? Where do these cutoffs matter more? You know, is the bottom 20% a more descriptive metric of the total well-being of the economy or the 10%? And what about wealth inequality? And wealth is the total monetary value controlled by a person. So if you think about that financial statement analogy I used a minute, minute ago, like the balance sheet, the snapshot at a date and time is wealth. Whereas the profit and loss statement, which is the activity over year, that's your yearly income in this analogy. So does wealth inequality matter more than income inequality? Why or why not? And then we hear about things like the shrinking middle class. So that comes back to how we define the middle class. It is, is it a relative measure? Is it an absolute measure? And is it shrinking or declining based on how you define it? If it's declining in all cases, how much upward mobility is there in that class? Is the upward mobility decreasing? And then all of a sudden, you know, you need to start considering other metrics that have to do with movement in and out of the middle class and not just the snapshot of inequality, the Gini coefficient at that particular moment. And so one of the ways that we try to take all of these different ways of looking at wealth distribution and get a more general picture is the Gini coefficient. And the reason economists like the Gini coefficient is that it actually kind of takes everyone's income into account. So it doesn't just take a snapshot of the 10% or the 1% or the middle class or anyone. It's everyone at once. And you could slap one number on it. And how the heck do you do that? 
Well, imagine for a minute with me and go check it out on the notes if I'm not able to describe this well. But you've got an X, Y axis. On the Y axis, you've got the cumulative income of you've, – you've got cumulative income. On the X axis, you, you have income brackets. So what you do is you essentially – the perfect way of measuring – Gini coefficients, you stack everyone's income from the lowest income to the highest income left to right, right, on this thing. So that each of them has a bar. And then what you have, and then on the y-axis, it's not actually just their income. It's the cumulative income. So it's everyone, every bar at a given moment is all the incomes of, you know, the left people plus that moment all added up, right? So cumulative. And so what that means is that if you had... Totally equal income. Everyone made the exact same amount of money. It would be a diagonal line, right? Because it would go up by the same amount every time, left to right on that graph. If you had complete income inequality, in which one person had all of the income, it would be zero all the way left to right until the last person, at which point all the income is right there, right? So perfect in income inequality is this diagonal line. Perfect income inequality is flat, 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 bam. So Gini coefficient is the curve. If you draw a curve along that graph, you take the area under the curve that is the difference between that diagonal line and the curve itself. You just measure that area. So it's a little bit complicated, but you get the idea that it can capture you know, it's looking at everyone's income at once. So we can capture a slightly more nuanced view than just looking at a snapshot of the 10% or the middle class or whatever. So really high, and it, and it ranges from basically zero to one, right? So so total income inequality would be one and, uh, and to, you know, not, you know, total equality would be zero. And so that the higher the number, the more the income inequality and, it's calculated by many different groups and the methodology is always the same in terms of like the math, right? So like you're, you know, you're doing some integrals here. So the integrals themselves are the same, but like what they're looking at, the data that they're looking at and how they calculate the, the inputs is a little bit different. So we can use the World Bank's, we're going to use the World Bank's calculation. You know, if you, you might be one of those G8 protesters who hates the World Bank, but, but we're going to roll with it. And Using the World Bank's calculation, the Gini coefficient of the United States in the mid-2010s is 0.486. So on its own, that means nothing, right? So like, is that a lot? Is that a little? We'll look at some comparisons. And that it's worth noting that that Gini of 0.486 is before taxes and wealth transfers. So they actually calculate two ways. One of them is just based on, you know, income before taxes, so you're just looking at what people, you know, essentially what people get paid at the top of their paycheck and after taxes and wealth transfers, wealth transfers being like, hey, you got unemployment and an unemployment check. You got a disability check. You got a welfare check. You got free health care. Those things. So kind of the bottom of your paycheck, but plus all the other goodies that you get from the government. So you can look at it that way as well. And Genie, in, it happens to be always lower. It doesn't have to be lower uh, because you could have like a regressive tax. But in like modern nations that have progressive taxes, Genie is always lower after looking at taxes and transfers. And so if we look at, if we look at where the United States ranks in the world, uh, remember that in income, it's like ranked, you know, depending on who you count between like fifth and tenth. It's doing great. If you look at where it's ranked in the world in Gini coefficients, it's actually above 100, right? So there's like 200 some odd 
you know, there's like 200 some odd places that got measured. The U.S. is well above 100. And it seems really bad. What we're actually going to do is we're going to look at how the United States does in the OECD, the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is essentially the rich kids. Right? It's the rich countries. We're going to look at the OECD countries because looking at a global ranking only tells you so much because there's all these countries that are crisis famine level poor that are way less unequal than the United States. And, uh, you know, and kind of everywhere in between, like China's – actually, sorry, China's more unequal. But but you can think of, like, all these nations that are they're not doing well. You don't want to live there if you've got the choice, right? If you live in the United States, you wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to pick up and move over to, like, Ethiopia because it has lower Gini coefficient, right? So we're just going to – we're going to restrict this to the rich kids and see how the U.S. is doing there. And for folks listening along, Genie is spelled G-I-N-I, not I dream of Genie. Although that might be an interesting <laughs> – that could be a sketch. That could be an econ sketch comedy routine that maybe three or four people would understand. Now, inequality being high certainly seems like a bad thing, right? And we've mentioned this edge case where one person could control everything and everyone else controls nothing. Now, I'll use a hyperbolic example to make a point, but is zero inequality good? So if if there was no distribution in earnings, if everyone made the same amount the exact same amount of money, would that be good? Would there be problems in the economy? Well, one of the one of the big arguments against the economic aspect of communism, for example, is that you create these incentive problems. You know, who would go to school for 12 years to become a doctor if you could just make as much doing something else? Who would start a company? And again, these these incentives, these ideas of different types of incentives are not absolutists. We're presenting them as general trends because clearly there were doctors in the Soviet Union, but there were still problems with incentives. And clearly, zero inequality is almost never going to happen because even if everyone makes exactly the same amount of money, goods are still going to be distributed somehow. And usually scarce goods in centralized control economies end up being distributed by mechanisms that don't have to do with price. So instead of charging more or less for an item, you just give it to someone you know and like nepotism and, you know, connections become the method for distributing goods. So that's that's an extreme example because clearly we're not talking about no inequality or all inequality. We're talking about different shades of gray, but I think it's helpful using those extreme cases to kind of think about how things might shift. But just don't get distracted that we're having a conversation between these binaries because that's not what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. So most most economists would say high inequality, definitely bad. Zero inequality, not so good. It means that something really weird is going on and you've created basically the Soviet Union in, in order to get that. And if there's no opportunity for people to go make a bunch of money, they're probably not going to start businesses as often because starting a business is hard and it kind of sucks. Uh, Xander and I can both tell you that. So, so you want to be – you know, you want maybe a little bit of inequality but not too much. And so let's see how the U.S. is doing against some other countries. So in the OECD, there are these 34 nations – Perhaps not surprisingly, the United States is pretty high. Before wealth transfers, the United States is ranked 29th out of 34 in terms of income inequality. So that's ahead of, so we are less unequal than Mexico, Israel just by a little bit, Germany, actually, which was a shocker to me, Portugal, and Italy in that order. So those five countries are more unequal before wealth transfers than the United States. So if we just... uh, I'm going to pick a few numbers because numbers suck on a podcast. 
So the U.S. is at 0.486. Italy is at 0.534. And South Korea is lowest at 0.344. So South Korea, before wealth transfers, has the most the lowest inequality of the OECD. Now, if we take after wealth transfers and taxes and all that stuff, the U.S. drops from 29 to 31. And Chile, Turkey, and Mexico are more unequal than it. So all those all those European countries that we looked at, boop, they pop right back up because they have a much more progressive tax system. They have more wealth transfers. They have more free healthcare. They have more. They have more. You know, they're taking more money from the rich and using it to to give give money to people with lower incomes, right? So they're after wealth transfers, they are less unequal. There's less income inequality. And one of the places that we should really be paying attention to in the United States is, you know, it seems it's, it's, seems there's this crisis of inequality. We should be looking at how it's increased over time in the United States. So uh, a few more numbers I'm going to rattle off. Remember, we're at 0.486 now in the mid-70s. Again, we're unfortunately, I only have notes for before taxes and transfers. The reason this is unfortunate is the U.S. used to be more aggressive in its, in its progressive tax system in the 60s and 70s. And so it's after taxes and transfers might have been even more acute. But if we look at before taxes and transfers, what's happened to U.S. inequality in terms of Gini coefficient? Right now, 0.486. In the mid-70s, 0.406. In the mid-80s, 0.436. In the mid-90s, is 0.477. And so the vast majority of the growth of inequality in terms of actual income happened between the 70s and the 90s. And then it bumped up again in the mid-2000s. It's actually stabilized since then. So U.S. income inequality has grown over decades, but actually slowed down quite a bit since the 90s. This is surprising, at least to me, where at least the sense I got from, you know, kind of where people have been paying attention politically, things felt good in the 90s, right? Like everything was great. And now it's terrible where where it happens to be the case that like actually the median person now is a lot wealthier than they were in the 90s and and again pre-tax income inequality is about the same you know it's, you know it surprises me a little bit it, but it might just be that we kind of took some time to to notice it and figure it out and it's certainly the case that since the 90s the wealthy are paying a lot less in taxes in terms of total percentage and so it may mean that you know and and also a lot of things have gotten more expensive right Healthcare has gotten more expensive, real estate in a lot of cities, education, et cetera. So again, you have to start looking at a bunch of different things at the same time and how they've all changed in order to get a sense of economic health. It is also the case that in all these other countries that we really care about, inequality has gone up, like pre-tax inequality has gone up. So this is a global phenomenon. It's happening faster in the United States, but it's definitely like Germany, Canada, all these places, their, their income inequality has gone up as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The last thing we want to look at, and, and this is woefully incomplete, so all of you economists out there are going to be like, you could have talked about all these other things. I know it's a podcast, but we're going to look at the Human Development Index which is a UN measure. Uh, it was made up by uh, an economist. Uh, I forget his name. Gosh, uh, he's from Pakistan. He's amazing. This is like in the 80s. And the Human Development Index is a UN measurement of multiple things, not just money, right? We've been just looking at money before, but we're going to look at things beyond money because after all, the point of an economy is to for people generally, kind of everyone as much as we can, to be able to go get things that they need and then you know things that they want some of the time. And so using HDI, we can look at a little bit more of things that at least the UN considers to be top priorities. HDI, we'll go into the details in a minute, but HDI focuses a little bit less on things like, or a little bit more on things like education and health, these things that are considered very, very needful, and a little bit less on uh, luxuries or or things that, you know, are just nice to haves. But Eric... Well, what what if this is nice to have what, for me? What if for my birthday I want a pony? Oh my god, that is like that is the most L.A. freaking Beverly Hills thing that I've heard. I'm I feel like there's a joke coming. Well, I don't have a joke, but the topic of L.A. and horses does bring me to a funny story. So uh, this is complete tangent, folks. Just bear with me here. You know how you do have different trash cans, right? Like trash, recycling, the green is for garden stuff, right? Well, yeah. in, LA, in LA, there's four. You have those three, but then you also have a brown one. And only 1% of the population of LA has a brown one. And oh, no. it's for horse manure. There's, <laughs> there, there's a trash bin for horse manure in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. How do you possibly know this? <laughs> I mean... We kind of go down rabbit holes for a living here, Eric. Yeah, I, I'm going to set the record straight. Xander does not own a horse. I've been to his house. There's no horse there. Uh, <laughs> it just happened. To, I guess you know people with horses. Not yet. All right, great. Anyway, HDI. Yeah, so the the UN uses the Human Development Index, HDI, and it's basically based on these three things. One is life expectancy at birth, mean and expected years of schooling, and gross national income per capita. So GNI, not GDP, which we talked about a minute ago. That looks more at total incomes rather than just production within the physical confines of a certain territory. And GNI also takes into consideration purchasing power parity or cost of living. So right off the bat, you can see that the HDI is measuring things that Economists try to understand about the wealth of the economy beyond mere economic growth. How well are the people doing? How long are they going to live? How healthy are they going to be? How educated are they? And how much human capital will that education generate in an economy? And this might be a better picture as a whole. I mean, there may be some meaningful overlap in all of these three, right? Higher income means there's more money to spend on health and there's more time for education and therefore, there's more of a payoff from the investment in that education. But still, it, 
including these things in a single metric may give more of a complete picture of how well an economy is serving the people in that country rather than just trends one way or another of production. So everyone take a few seconds to guess, you know, given what we know about income, given what we know about income inequality in the United States, given what you've heard, you know, maybe from the debates, maybe from your favorite subreddit or whatever, how you think the U.S. is doing, drum roll please, the U.S. in HDI strict, this is a strict measurement now, it doesn't, it's not, it's not taking anyone out of the equation, it's number 12, so the U.S. is number 12 in HDI, I'm not even going to worry about the number, because on its own it's meaningless, the United States is ahead in HDI of Finland, Japan, South Korea, the UK, France, and even Luxembourg and Liechtenstein. It is a hair's breadth behind Canada and Denmark. And like most, like pretty much all the OECD, the HDI in the United States is climbing pretty much constantly, although not as fast as Canada. So good work, Canada. You're onto something there. But so the US in this particular measurement is, you know, not the highest in the world, but pretty high and doing a lot better than a lot of or not a lot better, doing a little bit better. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a somewhat arbitrary measurement, but doing somewhat better than some of our other peers that we would consider as also doing pretty well as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to share kind of my own opinions about like, is the U.S. economy healthy? And so there's my Dan Carlin voice again. Is the U.S. economy healthy? And You've been practicing. I've, well, I've just been crushing Supernova of the East. Um, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Anyway, uh, I'm going to plug Dan Collins. He doesn't pay us. He doesn't know who the heck we are. He doesn't care, but he's awesome. He does now because of the Sound Education Conference. He answered both of our questions to that presentation. And I'm sure he remembers exactly (laughs) who we are. He's like, what insightful questions by these two. I bet he, he really listens. didn't like my question was no, the video that I got. Yeah. <laughs> so, the first thing Dan Carlin said after uh, the the host of the Sound Education Conference, Zach Davis, who's a really impressive dude. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He asked this question. Dan Carlin just kind of pauses and he goes, you know, here's the here's the problem. I have that question. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, fuck. Come on. I thought it was a great question. Anyway. So so I'm not going to give you my opinion. We've tried to give you a few different looks about the health of the U.S. economy right now. But Stieglitz didn't just care about the health of the U.S. economy right now in terms of inequality, in terms of, you know, our, our healthcare system, in terms of our education, lifespan, all that stuff. One of the problems he brought up was that in a, uh, GDP, and we talked about this before with this bubble problem, but he stretches this out even further. It's a momentary snapshot. And what about the long game, Xander? Well... There's this other economics joke. Well, it's not really a joke. It's a saying, which is, you know, well, in the short term, there might be this disequilibrium in the economy or something, but in the long term, it'll adjust. But in the long term, we're all dead. We're all dead. Yeah, right. But there, there is a differentiation between short and long term. But the question, of course, the gray area is how long is long. But Stiglitz points out that inequality is one problem with GDP. Since GDP is an aggregate measure, and even GDP per capita can be thrown off, again, because it is an average rather than median measure, as we talked about a moment ago. But then there are these other crises that he talks about in that quote that Eric mentioned up at the, at the beginning of this episode, such as climate change and other types of environmental damage. And GDP, and really not any or many of the indicators that we talked about previously, take environmental damage into account. And there are economic concepts to deal with environmental damage. This is not novel. I mean, I don't know why I remember this term, but Pigovian taxes is is a tax that the government levies in order to limit a negative externality. And a negative externality is something produced 
by a company that is the cost of which is borne by society. But still, in the general case, measures of the economy today don't take these into and don't take these costs into account and don't take into account the cost that perhaps a country or economy will need to pay for later in the future in order to generate the economic productivity that's seeing today that is getting measured. So the government borrowing that $1 trillion that to spend on fiscal stimulus this year that we mentioned earlier, that'll need to get paid back. How do you account for this? Well, one way to do that would be weighted future costs. So the likelihood of certain costs to materialize in the future and, you know, then you have to deal with some probability and ascribe some weight to that. And there's uncertainty built into that. And that's just kind of how it works. But then you also have to think about the cost to repair future damages and how that'll impact GDP. One other way might be some HDI-like index to measure environmental damage or other debts to current economic indicators that will kind of, you know, need to be paid back at some point. Yeah, it's it's. It's not an easy challenge, but Stiglitz in his book, which I have not read yet. I ran into it like a week ago. I really want to read it. It's on its way. So we may follow up with this. But, you know, what's the key point here? The key point is if we measure the wrong thing, we will do the wrong thing. And he's making a case that an obsession with GDP is measuring the wrong thing. And he's going and he it seems he further makes the case that that measuring the wrong thing is getting us to do the wrong thing in a way that is creating and exacerbating a crisis way beyond, you know, just another recession, that it's going to get bad. And even, you know, even now, you know, even as people start to are, are like, you know, have been protesting since 2010. I remember the, the what's it, the Occupy Wall Street protests, all that stuff. Even now, as as people aren't just obsessing about GDP all the time. They do when it's convenient, by the way, when it's politically convenient. Oh, yeah, well, our, you know, my guy's in office and GDP went way up when my guy was in office and stuff like that. But they, they do when it's economically convenient because we like to win these points because we think it helps somehow. But even though we're not, we're paying attention to stuff well beyond that, we don't have, even, even within our own tribes, much less as a nation, a kind of unified way of sitting there going like, hey, how well are we doing? Right. Like I can't pull that out of a hat. You can't you, you can't go look it up easily. It's not in the news the, like we know that GDP is effed up, but or insufficient. And we don't have a way, you know, there's there's no way that you as a as a voter can access this number to see how it's doing and hold a politician accountable to it and ask them how they're going to change that big picture number. Right. Whatever that big picture number is of of like making sure that, you know, yeah, the economy's healthy and generally people can be served by it. And we're not putting on all these future debts in terms of our environment, in terms of government debt, in terms of consumer debt, all these things that, you know, that the butcher bill will come due later, right? We don't have that place to go look at that and see, is this policy working or is someone going to go address that? And given the lack of that number being introduced, you know, be, being kind of part of the national parlance, the, the thing to reconsider for the moment is just remember that your party, your tribe, especially over the next year in the United States, is going to be trying to win points big time. And they're going to be pointing to stuff that is that looks good for them. They're going to be cherry picking some numbers that you've heard of before that look good for them, that look bad for the other party, whatever. And 
you know, that cherry picking can be, you know, when you want to win, right? Those of you who've listened to this for a while, you know, the idea of like, you want it to be true, right? Like you want, you want them to be right. You want your tribe to be right. It's very easy to fall into that. And when it matters most for you to kind of shut down that, that part of your brain that goes like, no, I demand more. Like I need to understand this better. And you need to be talking about all these other issues at the same time, you know, forget GDP today or forget whatever this is today. So Hopefully what everyone takes away from uh, from this episode is that I think you should demand more from your politicians and from your government in terms of what's being measured to really understand, are these policies working? And, and you know, what is the key performance indicator by which we're going to try to direct future economic policy to make sure that the economy works in the way we really care about? So... Before we call it quits today, well, that sounded more final than I meant it to. Before we're done with today's episode, let me just say, holy smokes, thanks so much. On iTunes, we're up to 88 reviews now, 4.9 stars. Wow. And we're, we're just totally blown away by this. Reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or whatever podcatcher you use really helps a lot. So if... You know, you have 30 seconds, you've been getting some of that, something out of the show, you've been listening for the last couple of years, please do leave us a review. It helps an immense amount. Oh, guys, thank you. That What an awesome statistic. I, we only check it every now and then. I know we don't respond to them ever. We're, we're bad. But but when we do check it, it, it super makes our day and it makes us want to keep doing this for you guys. Uh, we also recently just got a, a big spat of patreon listeners or uh, patreon supporters so we're, we're like looking back scratching our heads being like what episode did we put out that made people want to give us money anyone who is a patreon supporter we do respond to say hey thank you any thoughts so those of you like if you've given us money and you feel like you haven't heard from us your your email settings might be wrong so like go log back into patreon because you've got a message probably from me waiting for you and thank you all as well i just i we have fun doing this but but like we talk into like right now I'm looking at like a box with a metal thing in it. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and I talk into the box with the metal thing and then we let it into the world and we, we go like, I wonder if anyone will care. I wonder if anyone will get anything out of it. And it's when we hear from you in all these different ways, when people send us emails that say, Hey, I have a show idea or people leave a review or, or people, you know, donate on Patreon that, that like remind us, like we're not just blabbing into the void uselessly, right. That we're, we're doing something that matters. So, yeah, thanks, everyone. I know this one's gotten long, so let's split. Remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you, everyone. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.